I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Took it down, climbed a mountain, and I turned around, and I saw my reflection in the snow-covered hills till the landslide brought me down. So we've been been in this series called "This Is Us," where we're using scripture and this tool called the Enneagram to help us change the way we relate with one another, to change the way we relate with ourselves and our friends and our spouse and our kids and our parents. But, but today, we're going to change it up a little bit. Today, instead, we're going to talk about how to change the way we relate with God. I, I know people who aren't interested in church at all, aren't interested in religion at all, And I know people who come to church all the time, for whom religion has been always been this this part of their upbringing and their day-to-day life. I know people um, in both of these camps, I meet people in in both of these groups who who say things like this, me and God, we're good. God and me, we're good. And they assume that they that they are the ones that gauge that, that get to decide if they're good with God, get to decide how their relationship with God is going. Chris and I have been married for almost 14 years, and if you ask me, how's your relationship with Chris? It's one thing for me to assume Chris and I are good. It's this whole other thing, right? For me to ask Chris, how are we doing? For me and Chris together to take the pulse of our relationship. Chris, how do you feel about this pandemic and how it's affecting our relationship? Chris might have a different answer than I do to that question. Guess what? God God might have a different answer than you do to that question. So you're like, me and God, we're good. And God might be saying to you today, why don't you ask me how we are? 
God today might instead be be laying out, look, this this is us. You might you may want to run away from it. You might want to to paint a prettier picture of the intimacy of our relationship. But but this is us. And I'm calling you back. I'm calling you back today into re- right relationship with, with, with the inherently relational God who wants to know you. I want to know you, God says. Today we're, we're going to get into this seminal story in the Gospels. In, in terms, the seminal story in terms of our understanding of God and how God is calling us to get real with God and real with ourselves and real with each other. Did you hear the story today as it was read? It says that Jesus told this story to quote, some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Another translation puts it this way. Some people who had great confidence in their own righteousness. Some people who thought, Me and God were good. Now let's pause there for a second. Like how familiar does that sound? Among the world, among the church, we live amidst a culture where people trust in themselves that they are righteous and have great confidence in their own righteousness. Me and God, God... We're good, right? We're good. We live in this culture where everyone thinks they're good. We're good at our core, right? Our desires are good. Our actions are well-meaning. This is how self-righteous we are. Notice the the redemptive plots of our animated movies and our award-winning award-winning melodramas, right? 50 years ago, villains were villains. Now we have this whole new set of sequels and plot twists that unveil the good qualities, the redemptive moments, and the villains we once despised. Our gospel reading today says that Jesus told this story to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, oh, and by the way, regarded others in contempt. When we're good, oh, when we're good, (laughs) when we have great confidence in our own righteousness, when we're, God and I, we're good, we're not looking at God, are we? We're not looking at God, we're not pausing to ask God, God, how... How are we doing? How are we doing, God? We're we're not looking at God. We're looking at people. We're looking at other people. We're sizing up ourselves based on the others around us. We're looking at our neighbors and we're looking at our friends and we're gauging our relationship. We're, We're gauging this relationship with God based on the perception of their relationship with God. And Jesus says, there were two men who went to the temple to pray. And here's the thing. I don't care who you are. Every single 
one of us is going to identify with one of these two people. You either feel like you're totally separate from God, and there's no way God can fix the mess that you've made, or you feel like God's pretty lucky to have you on God's team. Jesus says two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. And here's the thing. They're both brilliant. Both of them. One studies theology and philosophy, and he's, he's a Pharisee. This guy speaks multiple languages and has memorized the Hebrew scriptures. And the other is this genius in mathematics and calculations, this genius in algebra. Both geniuses, one in math and, and one in theology and philosophy. Basically, it's Chris and I going to the temple to pray. One chooses to devote their life to being perfect before the eyes of God. And the other uses their genius, well, to rip off their neighbors and their friends because they're tax collectors. And, and tax collectors in the day and age of Jesus didn't just collect taxes. They stole money from people to benefit Rome. They were in the emperor's pocket. Imagine this. Imagine you are neighbors, your buddies. You went to school together and, and, and you get conquered by this foreign power together. And, and then your next door neighbor decides to go work for that foreign power and and makes you pay taxes. Oh, and by the way, gouges you and tells you you owe more money than you actually do owe. And then they put that extra money right in their pocket, getting wealthy off of your, your oppression. Tax collectors are hated. Pharisees are esteemed. Two men go to the temple to pray. Jesus says, one a Pharisee and the other a despised tax collector. And, and the, the Pharisee stood by himself. Isn't it amazing how self-righteous people like to be alone? That's their, that's their MO. And, and standing by himself, he prayed this prayer. It says, oh, thank you, God, that I am not like these other people, these cheaters and these sinners and these adulterers, thank you, God. I'm not like those people. Thank God I'm not like these people. This guy goes to church and feels like he's got to take a bath afterwards because he's been around such detestable, wicked people. And then he points... He, he, he points, I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice, twice a week. Oh, and I give 10% of my income to the synagogue that then give 10% of their income to the poor. And so one guy steals from people while the other guy gives to God's mission and to God's people. But it says the tax collector... The tax collector stood at a distance and he dared not lift his eyes to heaven. 
As he prayed, he, he kept his head down and he beat his chest in sorrow. And he said, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. You see, some of us, whether, whether we're willing to admit it, whether we're willing to admit it or, or not, really think that God is impressed with our lives, with our general goodness. That if God moved into our neighborhood in person form, that, that God as our neighbor would look at, at you and think, what a good person. They are. You know what the Bible says about your life? About my life? It says that our best days, our best work, our good intentions, our good deeds, our filthy rags before God. And you know why that is? Because we spend all our effort being good people before and among other people. And in comparison with people, instead of making every attempt to make ourselves right with God, before God compared to God. You know how holy, how awesome, how majestic God is? Even the most holy angels, scripture says, even the most holy angels, the seraphim, who stand before the throne of God, cover their eyes before God. This is the same God who spoke however many years ago and told the earth to sit and spin, and it still does. Some of us think that if God moved into our neighborhood and got an, a next-door view into who we are, that God oh, would be so impressed by us. Well, others of us stand before God believing that we're so far from God, so apart from God, so messed up, and there is no way that God could ever redeem us. That God could ever call you. I want you to know that you're wrong. I don't care where you are and what you've done. God can change your life. God wants to change your life. That's the power of Jesus. So the tax collector beat, beat his chest and said, Oh God, have, have mercy on me for I am just a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you this, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, Jesus says, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so I hope today that God would do a work in you that would, that would change the way you relate with God. 
And the only way to begin that transformation is the acknowledgement before God that you are a sinner, that I am a sinner. It's the, it's the Pharisee who comes before God praying, be good to me, be good to me, O God, for I am a good person. But it's the tax collector who comes before God praying, be merciful. God, take mercy on me. For I am just a sinner. I wonder which prayer you have been praying lately. Here's the thing I hear every year from some of you that the season of Lent, this 40-day season on, on the way towards the cross and the empty tomb, this season of Lent, which begins, by the way, like three weeks from now, I hear from you, the season of Lent really does nothing for me. And so every year people disappear from the church during the season of Lent. Folks back away from the message and the music of sin and repentance. And show up back Easter ready to celebrate. They Every year during Lent, people forsake the prayer. Lord, have mercy on me for I am a sinner. And show up on Easter Sunday praying, Oh, Lord, be good to me, for I am a good person. You know why that is? Because somehow, somehow along the way, we've made church into the space where, where good people gather rather than where sinners gather. We've made church this space where, God forbid, we tell the truth about how we screwed up, and how we hurt our neighbor, and how we sometimes gasp, oh my God, are not good people. The church above and beyond the courtroom should be the one place where you tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. Be merciful to me, O God, for I am a sinner. As Paul puts it, Every daggone one of us. <laughs> Paul probably didn't say daggone. But as Paul puts it, every daggone one of us has fallen short of God's glory. Every one of us has fallen short of God's glorious standard. Because our standard is not our neighbor, it is God. Our standard isn't to be a good person before and among and compared to other people. Our standard is the holiness and the majesty of God of which we all fall short and are called over and over and over again back into right relationship with God. None of us, none of us, none of us can say, me and God, yo, we're good. None of us can. And so the Enneagram is this tool that we've been using, this means we've been using to relate better with our neighbor. And today we're going to use it to relate better with God. It's actually, the Enneagram is one of the few spaces besides the church that, that actually addresses our sin. No other personality type indicator does this. Horoscopes don't do this. The Enneagram does. It, 
It gets at the root of our sin. Nine numbers, nine faces of the soul that say you are beautiful. You are created in the image of God. God has blessed you with enormous talents and gifts and unique ways of looking at and living in the world. And, and you are also out of that beautiful humanness marked by sin and prone to certain sins. And we don't all sin the same way, right? We don't all sin the same way. We don't all relate to God and forsake God in the same ways. And so what we do is we make our sin better than the other person's sin around us. And we begin to believe this lie that my sin is not in fact sin, but their sin is sin. Today we're going to start off with the one instead of instead of the eight. Eight so you can breathe for a little bit. We're going to start with the one. Because the truth is, ones, you're, you're better than the rest of us. It's just true. If we were in person, I, I might be able to hear a one somewhere in the room exclaim, Amen to that. You want to make the world a better place, sometimes ones, you're called the perfectionist and you're making the world a better place. And the problem with that is that you can never be perfect no matter how hard you try, only Jesus is perfect. And so what happens in the midst of that frustration that drives you away from God is, is that that this righteous anger crops up inside of you. It's what drives you away from God, this righteous anger. Once, once there's this guy in the New Testament, James, who wrote the book of James, and he writes this verse that is for you today. It's for you today, ones, as you explore how to relate with God better. James writes, human Anger does not and cannot ever accomplish the righteousness of God. When some, some of you, your righteous anger has turned rotten and has left you praying prayers like, God, be good to me, for I am a good person. But James writes, human anger does not and cannot ever accomplish the righteousness of God. Twos, you, you mean well, like the ones, you, you want to make the, the world a better place through helping, through serving. Oftentimes, you know the needs of others before they even know their needs themselves. But here's the problem, twos, you're not the Savior. Jesus is. Sometimes you are trying to help and it actually is making things worse. And twos, we love you, but your sin is the hardest out of all of them to identify and the easiest to dismiss as anything other than sin. And it's pride. Some of you are like, I don't struggle with pride. 
That is actually a prideful statement in and of itself. Pride is so hard to see. That, that's, why, that's why the accuser loves to dabble in pride, right? It's the sin masked in camouflage. And, and for some of you, your pride is leading you straight towards death. Because you don't think you're so bad or need to be saved. Because you help people and you love people and you give to people. And your prayers are sometimes more like this, though. Save me, God. For I know how much everyone else needs saving. Two is you can have savior complexes. And this can and will drive you further and further away from God. Then we have the three. And the three, the achievers course in, is lying. Threes, we're so worried about success that we often forsake the truth in the name of success. Here's the truth. Here's my confession, Kingstown. A pastor, your pastor to you. Here's the truth. Often I care more about what you think of me than what God thinks of me. Because I'm a three. But God already knows what I did and what I didn't do. Why is it that I care more about what you think than what God thinks of me? Here's what Jesus says, though, to the three. Jesus says, threes, the, the, the truth always comes out. Jesus says, threes, the secret truth that, that you suppress, the ones you you even convinced yourself were lies, it's going to come out. And the core sin of a, of a three is, is lying. And while pride is, this, is the hardest sin to identify, the idea that my core sin, the thing that has the capacity to drive me further and further away from God is lying, is embarrassing. And it's the last thing any pastor wants their congregation to think of them. She's a liar. She's a deceiver. But by not saying it out loud, I would be deceiving myself and deceiving God because often my prayers before God in my effort to maintain a sense of my own success to self-preserve and in my caring more about what, what you all think of me than what God thinks of me sound nothing like the prayer of the tax collector, but much more like, be good to me, O God, so that I can continue to succeed, continue to boast, continue to convince others around me that I am good. Good at what I do and good with you. God. Fours, the individualist, did, did you know that there are less fours than there are any other type of number? You are by definition what you wish yourself to be, the most unique. 
But here's what's ironic and tragic about your sin. You're the most unique, and yet your sin is envy. There's no one like you, and yet you want to be like someone else. And the things that envy breeds wrestle their way into your life and destroy the way you relate with God and see yourself in light of God. You're so focused on what others have that you don't, that they, they fail to see what God has actually given you. You're so focused on who others are that you fail to see who God has made you. And envy can make you do crazy things, Fours. Hear me, Fours. It was envy. It was envy that made people kill Jesus. Mark writes that the people were envious because of the crowds that followed Jesus. And they said, we have got to kill him. Your envy might not have killed Jesus before your envy can kill your faith. It can drive its way, dig its way into your relationship with God and kill it until you feel so worthless, so useless, so unredeemable and miserable that you forget the power and majesty of God's love for you. Next fives. Fives, God God made you brilliant. You're, you're a genius. We all know it. Uh, and, and you understand the world in a different kind of way from the rest of us. But what can ruin the way you relate with God, Fives, is your greed. Did you know that? Greediness is at the core of your sin. And I know that seems strange, but, um, but let me explain. We... We, we tend to think that greed is always wanting more. That's not greed. Greed is wanting to hold and hoard what we have. Fives, you tend to withhold and hoard. Tend to withhold and hoard emotion. Withhold and, and, and hoard your thoughts. Withhold and hoard affection. Withhold and hoard your time. Withhold and, and hoard your resources, your gifts, your space and time. And, and this holding and, with, and withholding and, and hoarding has this way of eating away at your relationship with God. The God who is always giving always pouring out, always generous for and to you. Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. And while you know that, Fives, it can be really hard for a Five to live that. Because in your effort to preserve you, what you have and, and what you know in that space where you are constantly worried that you don't have enough energy or time or money to give, you end up just living... Living for yourself only. And not for God. And God longs to hold you accountable for your brain that he has given you fives by calling you into right relationship with God, which always looks like generosity. Sixes are loyalists, sometimes called our skeptics. 
depending on who's taking, who's talking about the Enneagram. You probably feel now like you keep hearing the same thing over and over again <laughs> about you. Sin crops up into your life and eats away at your relationship with God predominantly through fear. And honestly, fear can, can feel like the best of sins. Like none of us wants to be named as greedy or lying or envious. But but fearful? Fearful I'll I'll take I'll take that sin any freaking day. A little fear never hurt anyone, right? But but Jesus tells a, a story, sixes, about three people who were who were given gifts. One was given five talents, one was given two talents, one was given one talent. And the one with five doubles the investment, and the one with two doubles his investment, and the one with one buries his gift in the field, and Jesus asks, why did you do that? And the one answers, because I was afraid. And Jesus takes what he has, and he gives it to the one with five, and the servant that did nothing with their gifts because they were afraid, finds themselves in utter darkness away from God, having crept so far from God's will and God's way in their lives. Six's fear is not a reason to not serve God. And yet fear will make you question your faith, question your call, question your gifts, question the church, question, 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 and the Bible instructs us to direct our fear, to direct our reverence and our questioning and our wonder, not at all the things, not at the senseless world around us, how it doesn't make sense, not at ourselves, but at God. The Bible tells us we are to fear God alone. Sevens are, are enthusiasts. We love you because you know why beer comes in six packs and why donuts come in 12 packs. Why stop at one, right? This is why we love you. Sevens, you are beautiful. You, you want to get out of life, all that life has to offer. But here's the problem, sevens. Jesus says if you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. Oh, that should be terrifying to a seven. Which means that the way you say yes to God is by saying no to something else, seven. The way you say yes to God is by saying no to yourself. No to all the many opportunities, all the many adventures, amazing adventures, fine, good adventures that will always be lined up before you and will always distract you and lure you away from the one thing that God has for you, seven. Sevens, you lie to yourselves and believe well, God would never give me a desire if God didn't want me to act upon it. That is not what scripture says. 
to be a Christian is so often to wrestle against our desires and all that we want, much of which is good and exciting. To be a Christian is to wrestle against our desires until our desires begin to look more like Jesus's desires and what Jesus wants, begin to look more like what Jesus wants and less like what we want. Jesus wants more than anything, sevens, your time, your diligence, your intimacy, and not your distraction. Now, eights are challengers. You are powerful, strong people. But your core sin, the thing that has the capacity to drive a wall between you and God, is lust. Now, when I, when I talk about lust, I'm not talking about sexual lust, eights. All of us, every single number, can struggle with sex in some way. We all do it in different ways. No, lust is so much more than sex. Lust is this desire for things that are not yours to have. Eights, you can struggle with, with wanting Wanting more. Wanting what you are to not have. Eights, you can struggle with wanting more power and more control and more position and more freedom. You want and you want and you want and you want and often you want what God from the beginning of time has told you you yourself are not to have. Eights, you want that knowledge of good and evil that God told you you were not to eat from. But you want it. You want to control it. You want to know it. You want to live out of it so that you might gain power over it. But eights, this incessant need for control often prevents you from being accountable. Accountable for the things that God has already given you. And you're, you're left praying prayers that sound more, more like give me and want, I want, than, than, than they do have mercy on me, oh God. Finally, nines, I, I mentioned this a couple of, of weeks ago, but, but no, it, it's not just how you relate with others. It crops up in how you relate with God, too. Nines, much of your sin crops up out of laziness and stubbornness and apathy. You, you know all evil needs to win, nines, is for good people to do nothing and to say nothing about it. We know you're good. But good people can do a whole lot of bad. Nines, you know when Jesus was, was tried and Pontius Pilate said, 
Hey, do you want me to kill Barabbas or, or do you want me to kill Jesus? And the crowd shouted, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And it was the nines, the Pontius Pilots that did nothing and said nothing. There are two types of sin, nines, and both are deadly. Both are dangerous to your faith. There's the sin of commission and there's the sin of omission, which means that you knew what was right and you ran from it because of whatever reason, laziness or, or the desire to keep the peace or stubbornness or a fear of conflict. And what nines often really won't won't want to entertain, can't entertain, is that God will hold you accountable for both of those. Both the sins you commit and, and the ones you turned away from. And so having, having explored every number, friends, we are all sinners. Each one of us, no matter no matter what our number, have fallen short of God's standard. And this affects the way that we relate with God and the way we see ourselves in light of the God and Jesus. According to the epistle writer John, if we live or claim that we have not sinned, if we say, God and me, we're good, if we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that there is no place for God's, God's light and life in our hearts. The world does not think that sin is serious, but God thinks that it is very serious. Because it is our sin, our pride, our envy, our lust, our greed, our deception that separates us from God. And so I wonder, I wonder what prayer you have been praying. Do your prayers sound more like, Oh God, be good to me, for I am a good person. I invite you into a posture today of praying the prayer of the tax collector. The prayer he prayed not because he was despised and, and crooked, but because he was human and humbled himself before God. God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. It's the, it's the prayer that turns us back to God over and over again. It's the prayer that puts God in control instead of us. It's the prayer that asks God, God, how are we doing? Instead of assuming we're good with God, it is the prayer of God's servant. God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. I wonder today how this prayer might help you wherever you are toward renewing and deepening your relationship, strengthening your relationship with God so that you might find fullness of life and faith and service of Jesus. Yeah,